Hey everybody, Todd here. Welcome back to Game Dev Breakdown, and this show requires just a momentary explanation. So the guest tonight is Matt Bradley Shergi. He's a writer, developer, podcaster, super interesting guy, very nice guy. When we recorded this in season two, we did not have a published date for his book yet. We know now that the book is coming out September 27th, 2019 from Moon Books. The book is called The Films of Uwe Boll, Volume 1, The Video Game Movies, which is a very cool project, and I'll let him tell you about it. So here's my chat with Matt. Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast. Brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Boom shakalaka. My mom gave birth in 1985. I was within a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the Cold War, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan Rampage, the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary. I think we got it. I think we're good. Okay. Matt Bradley Shergi. How close is that? You're exactly right. I'm shocked. Oh, my goodness. I'm not going to pretend I didn't look it up uh, in video form. But. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> but that's what I do. Are you comfortable? You look a little cramped. Um, it, it's just the way I have the setup. I need to really get, um, I don't know, like a plastic cube or something to balance my microphone on. Yeah, I know what you mean. But. I've had some uncomfortable setups in the past. And, uh, well, really, it's not that much better that I've wedged this huge microphone stand in my... <laughs> In it, in between me and my desk, but that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I this is probably more detail than you want to know, but that's what a podcast is for, right? So I used to have a condenser microphone, and sure. then um, the past few years we've we've uh, moved in with our in laws to save money, and they're raising their grandchild who is six and a half, and mm. uh, that condenser mic uh, quickly proved to be a bad idea. Um, picks up noise from uh, you know little kids running around and stuff, and traffic. So I got this. Uh, dynamic mic and it cuts out the background noise a lot more what is it about kids i i have a a son who is four what is it about kids that are drawn to these expensive microphones i i I don't know you know i can't even think of it's not like i don't think kids really listen to the radio or see (laughs) in cartoons they don't have characters speaking into microphones it's a good point they're not watching old movies about radio stations or anything it's (laughs) look at me Right, right. Or they're not watching game shows where people speak into microphones or, yeah, or what Bob have Barker, you. yeah. Yeah, or the um yeah, the family feud, uh yeah. So I don't know. It it just <laughs> it's kind of round at the end that makes it look a little bit like a toy, but other than that I don't really know. Um Yeah. A friend of ours has a um when their kid turned four for their birthday, they did sort of something that the parents and the kids could enjoy. So they have um it's a local chain of karaoke things called voice box where you rent a private room. And and they had all sorts of little kid songs like the alphabet and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and stuff, and so the kids could do that, but then the adults could you know drink beer and do uh, whatever Bon Jovi or whatever they do. I love uh, that, yeah. In between, so it was real neat. <laughs> I love that idea. Um, yeah, I, for our son's birthday, I bought him a like a personal PA system, which is just one speaker oh, on a stand, yeah. but it also has a you know, decent microphone that comes with it, and I bought that for him. He don't he won't touch that. But the expensive one I bought shortly thereafter for the office, he uh, the last time he fiddled with it was just today. So, <laughs> well, uh, I, I guess we're off to a little bit of a soft start. Just uh, kind of roll into it. But let's for people who are unfamiliar with your work or are familiar only with parts of your work. I have had 
writers, podcasters, authors, game developers on the show. I think this is the first time I'm checking all those boxes at once. So, <laughs> so sort of run us through high level what you do. Right. I have my fingers in a lot of different pies. Uh, I think perhaps what I'm best known for is I do a podcast called Sequel Cast 2 and Friends uh, that looks at movies uh, in a franchise one film at a time. Uh, I've been doing that with my co-host, William Thrasher, who's a friend of mine from college. And uh, in, in some way or another, we've been doing that for 11 years now. Um, Man. And so uh, that's been fun. Um, yeah, as far as uh, uh, indie game development, which a lot of what your podcast seems to be focused on, or game development in general, hence the name. Sure. <laughs> um, I graduated from Savannah College Art Design with a degree in game design in 2005. So I, I was one of the first people through their program. And we we can talk about that if you want. Um, sure, yeah. But I, I did a an indie game called Frankenstein's Bastard Daughter. That's a free sort of text adventure you can play on GameSalad.com. And uh, I'm currently working on a, a video game with the uh, film director Uwe Boll, who who did video game movies and uh, among others. And along those lines, I also uh, am shortly coming out with a, an unofficial book looking at Uwe Boll's video game films called The Films of Uwe Boll, Volume One. The video game movies 2003 to 2014 uh, coming out through Moon Books Publishing um, in a few months here. <laughs> now, if if the listener is paying attention at this point, they should be reeling because that's a lot to process already. It, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to kind of start small and work our way up to the uh, the wild parts of what you just said. So, right. <laughs> um, first of all, as someone who has also worked on their own, uh, I've actually written an entire uh, text-based adventure game engine uh, with like bootstrap and like web design languages and stuff. And I've, I never got to finish a complete game, but I do think it's gotta be some kind of a rite of passage for any game developer who grew up uh, when we grew up, you have to do a text adventure game of some kind or, or a text-based game. Uh, I agree. I, you know, I was born in 1982 and Although the first, I'm trying to think of those like adventure games. I didn't grow up with Zork and stuff like that, but I played them on re-releases in the '90s. My first adventure right. game was uh, probably Sierra Online's Black Cauldron game, mm. uh, based off the Disney cartoon. It was designed by Al Lowe of Leisure Suit Larry fame, uh, back when Sierra had the Disney license. Um, so it's it's fairly old, but it's a game with a pretty minimalist design. You don't have to type in the text as much as some of the other games. And, uh, yeah, so with this one, the, the prototype for the, my uh, text game, The Frankenstein Bastard Daughter, is um, I used actually a physical notebook because I was inspired by the Choose Your Own Adventure books. And I said, you know, I'm going to write it out first draft by hand <laughs> and only have it, the text take up one page of this tiny notebook at a time. And at the bottom, it'll say, do this or do that. And a big inspiration as I uh, went to the local bookstore, got some used uh, Choose Your Own Adventure games, and... They, um, I noticed, I had the recollection you're making choices all the time, but that's really not the case. You're reading 10 pages of text and then making a choice and you find out your brother is a killer robot and you die. And then yeah. you go back to the beginning or try to remember where you left off. And so with this one, I tried to make the text short and punchy and, um, have a lot of choices in there. And what I quickly ran into is I wanted to design it for iPhone. I started with iPhone 4. Um, developed it on my Mac Mini at the time. And then the iPhone 5 came out uh, during development and had a different resolution, so I had to redo the the graphics and so forth. 
Yeah. And um, and then when I submitted it to Apple, uh, I paid the hundred you know hundred dollars and change to submit to the App Store, and Apple said we can't publish your game. It is too ugly. It is not aesthetically beautiful. Oh no. And I said this is a text adventure, and I pointed to other examples, and um. It, it just sort of fell apart, so I, I just decided to release it for free through Game Salad, and Game Salad is what I use to develop the game with. Have you heard of that before? I'm not actually familiar with how they work. Yeah, so um, on the Mac, it's free. I'm not sure if they have... I think they might have a PC version, um, and you can develop the game with their sort of drag-and-drop engine. It's a bit like the old Maxis program Click and Play, mm-hmm. if if you've heard of that. Um, yeah. Or, or game maker or something along those lines. Sure. Uh, and it, the idea is you can export stuff. It's good for making prototypes, I think. And and the problem I ran into trying to to make a game with it is the uh, the text it renders in the engine is really uh, doesn't look that good. So each page of my text adventure I rendered as image files through Photoshop. Huh. And then laid them as into. It was like the most complicated way possible. In retrospect, I would have been better using Twine, which is a pretty well known. Yeah. Uh, indie sort of text adventure thing, but I didn't know any better. And you know, once I did it, you know, the whole th- game's like a hundred rooms long. I don't think it takes very long to beat. And I worked with a, a collaborator of mine who's done music for my podcast, uh, Mark with the C. He's out in Orlando, Florida area, and I got him to compose a theme music for the game. Nice. And I, I actually used part of his music and have it uh, in the sound design of the game. So if you make a choice where you don't die, it plays one clip of the music. And if you make a choice when you die, it plays a different clip of the music. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I was just going to say, it's interesting that you would, um, that you would actually use, uh, you know, a, a game application of sorts to do this game and that they would shut it down and say, it doesn't really, I, I forgot there was a time when Apple was kind of doing more of this. They were going like, um, mm-hmm we're going to be picky and choosy on this one. And we don't entirely like this one's not for us. I don't think they really do that as much anymore. Yeah, I don't think so. This would have been like in 2012, 2013, something around that time. Yeah. You, you kind of blew my mind by mentioning the, the Mac mini. Cause that was exactly the way I first tried to get into professional game development. I, I went out and threw a Mac mini on my credit card. Cause you had to have, mm-hmm. you had to have a Mac device and that was the cheapest one. So I, I yep, went, yep. Okay, I'm going to do that, and then I paid the hundred bucks, and then, uh, whew, nothing got done for a long time after that. Still, so, <laughs> but so they they didn't let you go for it, and Game Salad was uh, was how you eventually got it done, right? And I think in retrospect, they they sort of relented when I pushed back about them saying it was ugly, which I mean, frankly, it is. It's go it has an old fashioned looking um, text that looks very blocky, like something on a TI eighty five calculator. And has neon green text and, and orange text, kind of like the old computer monitors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I made a mistake on GameSaddle developing the game. I, I picked the wrong option, and I couldn't undo it where... Um, at, uh, the other reason why Apple rejected it is when you turn your phone from the, the portrait mode to the widescreen mode, mm-hmm. the game didn't adjust smartly with that. It didn't you know redo the resolution. And so because of that, it would cut off the text if it was in widescreen mode. And Apple said that's absolutely unacceptable. Like you said, I think they were assholes at the time, um, and maybe they've loosened up on that because there's no lack of things on the Apple Store, legitimate or otherwise. Well, yeah, and the two things that come to my mind when we talk about games like this are, one, games like Hack Run and Hacknet and all those, which are actually very fun games, but they're mm-hmm. very they're just straight-up console 
and you type yep. in commands. And as they went on in the series, they got a little more creative. But the other one was a dark room or the dark room, whichever one that was. That was like straight up. He, <laughs> it seemed like they, he sort of catered to Apple on that one because he used the most very basic application framework for actual Apple apps. But it wasn't any of the game stuff. It was just like, you know, press this button. You stoked the fire, you know, and, and it just <laughs> goes on. It complicates from there, but it was just yeah. very simplistic. And that won awards. And he recently sure. ported that to the Switch. Right? Mm. <laughs> and he, uh, this was a news story recently. I don't think a lot of people saw it, but in the Switch port, there's some kind of um, like sort of soft root application where you can log in and like mod stuff and, and all oh, that. It lets, you, it lets you program something in Ruby or something. Is that right? It's something like same? that. And Nintendo had to pull it. So that's their champion. So good luck with that. Right. <laughs> So, so you, you pretty much got got uh, screwed a little bit by Apple. I I completely <laughs> think that's ridiculous. So if you had if you'd done that a little bit later, I think it probably would have gone through and probably been popular. I, I don't know about popular, but yeah, I think it sort of would have had a, a bigger audience. I, I did have, you know, the one person I got feedback from the game from uh, was a, a friend of mine. I used to host a bar trivia with um, in Portland, Oregon, around the time I was doing the game. And uh, I asked her, you know, and she played it to the end. And I said, well, what do you pay a dollar for that? And she paused for a solid minute before <laughs> saying, I guess. And it kind of, you know, you look in the app store, so many things are free with demos or whatever. That when it comparatively, it can make a dollar seem expensive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, there you go. When When my first app came out, it was just a, it was like a five screen educational game for like young kids, five and under oh. mm-hmm. to learn letters and numbers, which I made for my son and decided to sort of flesh it out and put it on the market. And I had close friends who, who were asking me about it. Can I get this for my kid? And I said, yeah, I put it up. I, uh, I'm asking for a dollar for it. And you know, it took me like eight months to do and, and they were like, mm-hmm. so, so it just teaches English. yeah it just teaches Uh, english it's just the one language for this dollar app i'm sorry take it up with apple (laughs) yeah um you just reminded me i think we mentioned you know sort of offline when we were talking uh i had taught some uh, some game design courses for imagination computer camps in oh i think like 2004 or something and and so i'm teaching kids you know between grade school and high school about game design we were using game maker Mm. as the primary uh software uh, I, I forget what version it was at the time. And I, I taught the kids to make a title screen um, to make it look a little more professional, uh, even though a lot of them didn't like that. And this one kid, he shows me his thing, and I go, what, this isn't a title screen. It's Mario on on some bricks, and it has the title in the background, but there's no click to start. And he says, no, no, you just move Mario. And I did, and I went down a, a pit and then it goes down, and that's when the real game starts. And I just was sort of blown away by that. And that, uh, you know, these kids are coming up with things so creatively. Um, with what little you teach them, they can get so much more beyond that. I found that very inspiring. <laughs> Gonna let this one slide, kid. Yeah, <laughs> you're. I love this because you're you're actually one of the more uh, formally trained guests I've had in uh, at least recent history, having gone through actual game design uh, training in a classroom setting and coming away with a degree to that effect. So. Uh, right. So it was 2005, so it was a while ago. Um, a lot of what they had us use was the editor, for, I think, for level editor for Unreal Tournament, um, oh, 2003 or whatever, yeah. 2004 or whatever version it was at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used some 
3D Studio Max and Maya and Photoshop and uh, that like I, I'm more of a writer or a designer I think than an artist so I wasn't that good with that but I did do much better using a uh, hacked version of RPG Maker nine or 2002 and also using a Macromedia Flash um, I, I was a little bit better with so I mean we got to try a lot of different sort of um, applications through through the school program. Um, and the Adobe suite, I think, like I mentioned. Um, so there's just, it was very interesting to see what people would, would come out with. And, and we did sort of have a thesis, uh, project, um, at the end. And, uh, my, when I was in school, my team, we used this RPG maker version that was Japanese translated into Russian and then translated poorly into English. And it's some, it still worked on a PC's. Uh, we had in the, you know, just American PCs or whatever. And so we did a little short, you know, concept based on the Japanese movie Battle Royale, um, which you couldn't even get legally in the U.S. So it's a <laughs> a, boot, uh, a game made on bootleg game development software based off a bootleg movie. Uh, in retrospect, I'm not sure how good of an idea that was, but it was a, it was a fun uh, <laughs> way to play around with it, at the, to say the least. In case anyone hasn't heard of that one, <laughs> I was I was looking over to the side when you were talking about Unreal Tournament because I was looking for my huge ass uh, Unreal Tournament or uh, Unreal Development Kit books from that exact oh, time yeah. period. Like yep. they were huge and they were like fifty bucks each and there were two volumes. And uh, that was that was around the time I was getting into it seriously too. I made my very first game uh, with one of the very early versions of Game Maker. I was only seventeen or eighteen. Then I tr- moved on to try to get into the UDK and uh, sort of bounced around from there. But I ended up having to go into professional software development, not games. So I didn't get to focus on it for quite some time. And I sort of picked it back up later. Well, in my day job, I actually, I work in software development. I do QA and I've also done like tech support. God bless um, you. For, for um, medical and financial applications. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so it's it's you know different, but somewhat related. And then I'm working on computer software uh, of some sort. But I, I go back, and I, I haven't thought about this in a while. But you know, thinking back to my college days, what was the most useful thing is you made your little game in your class or your demo, and then the professor would you would load it up on the computer at the front of the classroom, and then a random student would have to play it, and you have <laughs> to sit there, and you couldn't tell them what to do. Oh no! And th- and that was very <laughs> informative. Because yeah. you assume so much, especially when you're designing your own game, how things work. And what you think might be intuitive um, isn't to someone else. And yeah. <laughs> it, it goes to show how, you know, why there's tutorials in games. Exactly. And it's it's only all the more frustrating for children, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> but um, I think it's worth mentioning, you were using uh, RPG Maker at that time, and it was... It was basically a hacked version, but it kind of had yeah. to be at that time because that was mm-hmm. like the only way to use it at that time in in a language you could read or something like that. Do I remember that right? Yeah, more or less, because I actually, you know, a few years before that, I had placed the original PlayStation, PlayStation 1, and I had RPG Maker on the PlayStation 1. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that was quite terrible to use with a, the PlayStation controller and not having a keyboard or a mouse or anything. Yeah. So on the computer, it was so much easier. But you're right, yeah, it there wasn't as many game development things out there. I think, you know, you had, um, the Warcraft two had a level editor. Starcraft had a level editor, of course, doom and Wolfenstein. I did a little, you know, I didn't release anything, but I, I had a book, um, on, on how to use, I I wish I could remember which one, but it was like how to do 
maps with Doom and you're using a, a DOS-based WAD editor. Oh, yeah. And that was extraordinarily complicated. And I was really blown away reading recently how John Romero just came out with a new uh, episode of Levels for the original Doom. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's 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 nuts. But at the same time, like, you know, what better guy to do it? <laughs> exactly right. It's, it's wild to see some of these... Uh living legends still out here doing stuff like that it's cool that they're doing new stuff too but the going back to mm-hmm. the old stuff is just you know if you'd asked me as a kid like what would you like to see when you grow up like i want to see these people still doing this stuff later on <laughs> so from here how do you get into at what point do you start getting into the writing and the journalism stuff yeah so um as a kid i subscribed to nintendo power magazine and i, I would read each issue you know like 20 times at least and, and Me memorize too, yeah. them and, and all that stuff. Cause you didn't really have the internet or if you did, um, what was available is really poor. You had nuke.com or I think happy puppy or, or <laughs> something is really, uh, pretty simple, basic websites. And, uh, the writing really started with, I had a, I was doing at that time a film program in college. And, uh, one of my friends, Zach was doing a journalism program and we started a website called eBoredom. And we just started doing reviews of old video games. And in college, I, I reached out to, um, I actually probably want to republish these in, in some sort of a book form, but I reached out to game designers and producers and composers and interviewed them for this stupid little site. And so I got to talk to people like Eric Chahi, who designed uh, Out of This World, which was sort of an older uh, Prince of Persia style game. And, um, mm-hmm. oh, geez, like Brian Fargo, one of the co-founders of Interplay. Like, for some reason, these people Man. would talk to me, and I don't know why. But <laughs> That's I, really cool, though. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I, I uh, don't think I quite appreciated what I had, and just uh, having the the gumption to go out and reach out to these people and do it um, was a lot of fun. And then I, I kind of had you know blogs on and off for a while, but it really wasn't until um, uh, a friend of mine who was a an editor for PC Gamer, oh geez, in in like sometime within the past ten years, I guess I can't quite remember when. Um, said, you know, Matt, you shouldn't be writing these articles for these websites for free. They should be paying you. Hmm. And I was like, well, can you give me a contact? And, you know, he gave me a contact at PC Gamer UK and I sold them something and it didn't end up being published, but the check still cleared. In fact, (laughs) the check cleared. It took so long for the check to clear. And by the time it cleared, Brexit had just been announced. So the value of the pound had uh, soared down. So it cost me around a hundred dollars in, oh, no. <laughs> uh, in income, but that was, you know, my, my first sale really. And, uh, and from then I was pitching stuff to article to people like, uh, games radar and, uh, even some, uh, did some technology stuff for pro focus technology and sort of build up a roster of articles and, uh, hardcore gaming one Oh one and kind of got that discipline to, to get stuff done. And, uh, you know, I, I did start off writing un- unpaid and, I don't know. You know, without that experience, I wouldn't have gotten good enough to do the paid articles. But at the same time, I don't know if I'd recommend that to other people either. Because yeah. I think you should get paid for your work, even if it's just twenty dollars or whatever. Some of these these smaller sites pay. At least that's um, at least that's something. Yeah, I I did a little bit of this, and I I went in such a stupid order because I was on Twitter and sort of making friends in the the game development space just because I was going indie for the first time and. Mm-hmm. It was that way that I saw the first uh, sort of call for freelancers for Zam.com and met one of the mm-hmm. editors there. And they, they took some of my work and it was like, oh my God, this is a whole new thing, whole new career that I always thought would be awesome. But like I was a technical guy with a 
tech, a tech school degree. And so, but people were letting me write and they were saying it's okay and they like what I do. So I thought, this is awesome. I would love to get on like as a staff writer somewhere and see if yeah. I can do that. Because I didn't really know what I was doing. I read a couple of uh, Nathan Munier's books on, on game journalism and okay, I'll be like that guy. <laughs> so I took a free staff position at a website that would give you ga- games for reviews, basically. Right. And I thought, oh, I'm getting free games. You know, my inner child is happy and I'm going to do this mm-hmm. and whatever. And within a couple of months, I was helping them edit. And it tur- it consumed my life. Like it took yep. over everything yeah. as, as these things do. And I wasn't making a dime. And, and that made it harder to sell work to paid sites because they're like, well, what do you spend all your time on with this other site? Like, oh, I did it all wrong. <laughs> but I, I really I've come to that same way of looking at it that you do and that your uh, contact a PC gamer did. I don't think starting for free is a good way to do it unless you're just doing it for your own website or investing it in yourself. A, a site that'll take your work for free is never going to not do that, you know? <laughs> So right, and and some of these these places, I'm not I'm not going to name names, but if you look around, you can connect the dots. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these are, are sites that have make more than six figures on Patreon. <laughs> some of these are, are some of the top movie sites out there. That when I said my rate was whatever it was, which is I don't know, I think at the time I'd have been like fifty dollars or something. I was lowballing a bit. Mm-hmm. And they said like, oh, that's too rich for us. And I'm like, really? You said you're the number two, you know, movie website in this particular genre. Like it's um, a lot of it's still going on to this day. And it's it's sad. And I think you have to hold yourself to a better standard. And because as, as long as writers keep accepting writing for these things for the exposure, they'll keep on taking advantage of them. Yeah. Does your uh, writing around the web sort of follow any sort of theme or do you just bounce around and whatever you know tickles your fancy? Uh, I definitely have a theme of, of either movies or retro games. Mm-hmm. And I think my love of retro games started sort of accidentally. I, we had visited, uh, as a kid, I lived overseas for, for six years, but we would come to the States to visit people, uh, family. And, uh, you know, we had a, a family member that had a, uh, a NES, a Nintendo Entertainment System. And um, that sort of blew me away. And I wanted one of those. And my dad didn't get me one of those initially, but he got me an Atari 2600 with like 20 games for like next to nothing. Yeah. And at the time, I was kind of annoyed because none of my friends that came over to my house wanted to play this old shitty system. Right. But at the same by, by playing those, I sort of, you, you learn to have, the, you're fun with them and learn to have a respect, I think, for the history of the medium. And and really, you go back, and I think they, they recently released a, an art book of uh, the covers for the Atari 2600 games, and they're quite wonderful paintings on a lot of them. Like, yeah. th- these games look like squares and rectangles, and you have you have to do this, like, lush cover art. And it was that same way with the 8-bit and 16-bit era. You know, I mean, you would go to the Blockbuster video, and you'd pick a game to rent just based on the cover alone. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I met a guy who's programming a modern atari game in his spare time and he he did a little talk at a festival recently and he goes well you know if you look at the picture on the cartridge this picture has like a thousand times the the data space of the actual game itself so you can fit the game into just this image if you were to scan it thousands of times and uh it's it's funny how that has gone i started with the atari as well and 
I think it's a good experience. I wish I had started my son on it just so I could sort of walk him through the evolution of games. So I never hear him say like I'm bored. <laughs> you know? Right. I, I did a, an article a few years ago for Dread Central looking at, um, you know, like horror themed Atari 2600 games. And so firing those up in the emulator, it was really kind of a blast to the past. And it really um, forces you to use your imagination when the gameplay is, is simplistic and repetitive. And I say that, and I like things, you know, like Tetris and Pac-Man um, and, you know, some games that are pretty simple by today's standards. Uh, but, but that on the Atari 2600, they even tried a game of Texas Chainsaw Massacre is complete nonsense. <laughs> that shouldn't have happened. It's true. <laughs> and it did. And there was a Halloween, you know, game on, on that system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just completely bananas. Yeah. And I guess to answer the other part of the question, the, the writing is on movies and, uh, as a kid, as I mentioned, I lived uh, overseas for six years because of my uh, dad's job. I was in Central and South America, and we didn't. The only English channel we got was CNN, so we would watch a lot of movies you could rent from the embassy. And my dad didn't like to waste time with children's cartoons, so often, you know, me and my sister, who were just like in first or second grade, would watch things like Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> or uh, Terminator, or um, uh, the one that really sticks in my mind is uh, Eddie Murphy's Coming to America. Oh, yeah. Where I saw that in a, in a theater at the at the embassy, and you have, you know, lines of... You watch it now as an adult, lines of dialogue where the women are with Eddie Murphy in the bath, and he says the royal penis has been cleaned. Like, you don't know what that means as a first grader, but it's... Yeah. Um, like it or not, I think that helped uh, form my love for movies because it's something we did as a family and, uh, and enjoyed together, even if you didn't always understand what was going on. Yeah, that would be really special, I would think, if that was mm-hmm. sort of your big connection to uh, you know, life as you know it to some degree. Right. And, and along those, uh, another thing along those lines, you know, we so kids watch cartoons, but we lived overseas and we couldn't really. So our grandparents would videotape cartoons once a month and mail it to us. Oh. And so we'd be excited for a videotape to come on with new commercials. <laughs> and think about going to that when you move back to the United States after six years. And there's new commercials and new shows on all the time was was a bit overwhelming. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. 
$1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. It's true. Things things progressed in that department pretty rapidly. So so this this does kind of make a lot of sense that you would uh, later have the sort of passion required to do a a long running film podcast. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people might not have what it takes. However, it does sound like a blast to have a buddy that you just have to watch these films with and do shows. I mean, that would be a fun st- like do you guys hang out and watch them before you do shows? Uh, so here's the thing. So I live in Portland, Oregon. My co-host Thrasher lives in Frankfurt, Kentucky. Oh. And so we have to um, line things up. I think recently, recently we've used things like like Plex or Netflix or whatever to, to sync up with what we're watching a bit better. Yeah. So although I would love to do it with us in the same room, I haven't seen him in person since my wedding uh, nine years ago. But that we can connect through through Skype. It, it's the way I describe the show is like I, I edit it pretty loosely on purpose. It's almost like you're eavesdropping on a conversation we might have on the phone talking mm-hmm. about these movies. And um, why I picked the sequel angle is even as a kid, I was always fascinated with you go to this the video rental store and see the boxes again. And you see, you know, like, oh, Halloween 3 and Halloween 5. Like, oh, maybe this next one will be better. And every once in a while, you get those sequels after several entries that kind of blows you away. But for the most part, the sequels do get worse. And it, it's a, yeah, it's a weird little journey you're constantly going on. It's like it, it's like the first movie, it's the top of the slide. And then you keep going down in quality. But hope you're looking for that bump that'll bump you up in the air and be a bit of a fine thing to surprise you with. Yeah, I, I think I probably watched more films as a kid than I even do now. And mm-hmm. that was partially because my grandparents uh, weren't entirely paying attention to what I was doing at their house but also because they would they would take me to yard sales, which they liked to go to, which was fine. And we would look for movies that people had on tape. That's what everyone was doing all across the nation, children. They would uh, tape movies on TV and they would have collections of them and then they would sell them to you. Was, yes, we, like, we would yeah. all be sued to death these <laughs> days. But, um, so I, I, I noticed that on your website – Somewhere you've used Police Academy as sort of a joke for a series that is just, you know, zany to watch. And that mm-hmm. was a, a big one for my childhood. For some reason, we always had Police Academy movies around. And I was always watching them. So I, I, I do love a series you can get into and you sort of recognize the name and go, oh, my God, they made another one. Let's see it. Right. And um, it, it's especially weird, this latest trend of you have a movie that's a sequel to only the first movie in the series. And it, it pretends like all the other sequels didn't exist. Um, (laughs) kind of like you had with the recent Halloween movie with Jamie Lee Curtis, where she's older. Uh, and you're going to get that same thing with the new Terminator movie. Terminator dark fate comes out, uh, later this year. Um, that only acts like one and two exist. (laughs) So, uh, it, 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 it can get quite confusing. Yeah, for sure. And so you're doing this podcast, and is this the way that you first decide to track down Uwe Boll? Good question. Um, <laughs> no. So uh, I was, you know, I was on the internet 
pretty young. My my family was in Atlanta, Georgia, and we had an ISP at the time called Mindspring. I think now they're called Earthlink. I don't know if they're still around. I know about uh, them, yeah. Is it? Okay. So, um, But at the time, you know, it was all dial-up, and I had a 2400-baud modem or whatever in my Packard Bell 4666 <laughs> with 8 gigs of RAM. Or not gigs, <laughs> megabytes. Um, yeah, megabytes. <laughs> Double-speed CD-ROM, all that fun stuff. Mm. So uh, we would uh, I'd go and use the internet and all that stuff, and you would... Uwe Boll, I had heard of with um, his first major film in the United States to get a theatrical release was House of the Dead. And that came out around the same time as the American remake of The Ring. And I was going with my college friends to see The Ring, but part of me wanted to see House of the Dead because the reviews were like, <laughs> oh, this movie is so bad, you can't, you can't imagine it. And I've always been a fan of like something is so bad, it's good. Or um, I was talking on Twitter a few years ago to um, Duncan Jones, who directed Warcraft, and mm. we we're talking about, and he tweeted back at me like, Matt, do you like movies ironically? And I don't, I think that's a really tough question to answer, but he sort of had a point. But I, I do sort of like, you know, like the trauma sort of aesthetic and the sort of uh, that kind of the more indie, grittier sort of thing. So uh, and to answer your question, when I first saw Uwe Boll, it was a few years later, House of the Dead came out on video. I had a friend over. I made some Japanese-inspired pork stew, and we had some beers and just laughed our ass off at, at how ridiculous some of the dialogue was. And, and it was still compelling in spite of itself, which I think is more than you can say for some video game movies like, oh, I don't know, Double Dragon or <laughs> Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah. Or I, I can name a lot of worse video game movies than Uwe Ball. And it, it sort of grew into an obsession picking up his used movies uh, at the store when I could find them because they're really not that much in print, even now. They're kind of tricky to find unless you, you look in the, the used section. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that's how it all began. And uh, I, Although the only one of his I saw in the theater was, um, besides Blood Rain, I think was uh, In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale. Which I've only heard of to this day. Yeah. Um, it was his highest budget. It stars Jason Statham. Uh, Burt Reynolds, Ray Liotta plays an evil wizard. Uh, that's an wow. odd choice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it also has John Reese davies which is weird because he just was in Lord of the Rings as Gimli not that long before then. <laughs> but it, it's, it's a, I really like it, but it's a very, very quirky fantasy epic that I, you know, that I, is certainly much better than say the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, I think what I learned um, watching these Uwe Boll movies and uh, working on these uh, unofficial books I'm I'm working on about Uwe Boll movies is you have to compare them to other Uwe Boll movies. If you compare an Uwe Boll movie <laughs> to, say, Roman Polanski or Quentin Tarantino, like you're going to quickly get nowhere. And, I, and you, <laughs> once you see enough of them, you sort of notice patterns and, and things you can enjoy w- within it. But it is easy at first glance to look at these things and go, oh, oh they're stupid. But if you if you dig... Uh, I think there's a lot more there beyond on the surface if if you're willing to look. Yeah, for sure. The first of his films that I saw was Blood Rain, mm-hmm. and then the I think the only other one I've seen is Postal, yeah. and somehow I managed to see them both through Netflix. But I think it was back in the disc mailing days. Mm-hmm. So if I remember right, and I I remember sitting back and. At this point, it really wasn't that long ago. So by that time, I've spent all of my life hearing how ridiculous these films are. And really, by the time I sat down, it was like, well, they're different. They're clearly different. 
Yes. But it's yep. it it's not the it's not the shit stew that I was promised. You know, <laughs> like there mm-hmm. there is a certain mindset to it. Like it's not just pure insanity, anything like that. So I had to and I think I've even uh tweeted back to you to this effect when I, I saw you mentioning him on Twitter. I I, I thought People, it's not at all the way people describe it. Like there is a certain system to it, and it's it's created with certain guidelines in mind. Yet, like you said, you have to compare it to itself, basically, and uh, to the other films made alongside it. But he's a prolific uh, film creator, so you know he he keeps getting to do it, and and it's it's its own thing. Um, this becomes a, a big thing for you, the the film work of Uwe Boll. Mm-hmm. Time passes. How how do you guys? I'm trying to frame this question correctly. Like, how does this become an ongoing thing where you guys are kind of like in contact? Right. So um, I and mentioned I, I do the podcast Sequel Cast Two and Friends, and uh, living here in Portland, Oregon, we have a few different movie and video game conventions that are in town. And so, um, on some level, to get me and my friends into these things for free, we do a live panel at this. With the Smart. sequel cast branding, right? Yeah. And we decided to do it um, in 2018 at the Portland Retro Game Expo, uh, which if, you, if you've if you never been, I'd recommend it. It's one of the best retro game expos in the country. Um, we did a panel on Uwe Boll's uh, video game films. And I was in contact with um, one of Uwe Boll's producers, uh, Gary Otto, and I got to interview him for um, the uh, panel and the original plan was to have him appear uh, through Skype live at the panel and take questions from the audience. But unfortunately, at the convention center, the Internet is so poor that Ooh, I had yeah. to do it in advance and sort of cut a video and put it up. And you can see it on YouTube at uh, YouTube.com slash sequel cast um, to, to see the whole thing. But so I think that's really how it started. But even that, you know, getting Uwe Boll to uh, through um, Gary Otto to agree to it took took a few months and it's uh well you know this you've interviewed people for your articles or for your podcast and it's never a quick thing um to, to get the stars to align yeah it's a lot of back and forth and, and and give and take and you eventually settle on something absolutely yeah I've I've got a couple on the on the line right now that are like big name in the industry at least and it's like well hit me up in a couple of months and i've got deadlines and they absolutely do these people are very busy and i'm stunned mm-hmm. that they would give me the time of the day in the first place and so i'm I'm happy to do it but at the same time in the back of my mind i'm thinking like i will have to clear out some time for communication leading up to this and it's going to be kind of a, a big thing so i get it right um and so the the interview i think went went well. I did a lot of research listening to him being interviewed on other podcasts and other websites uh, for sort of background. I mean, I'm trying to, you know, the first time I did sort of a celebrity interview, if you want to call it that, was uh, one of the colleges I went to um, before SCAD was at Georgia State University. I got to interview as part of a, the big one, I think, was in person. I got to interview Paul Hogan, the guy that played Crocodile Dundee, because oh, Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles came out, the third one, yeah. that no one remembers existed. Um, <laughs> and so I got to talk to Paul Hogan. I got to talk to the producer, the executive producer, Lance Houle, uh, who used to work on some Chuck Norris films in the 80s, like Missing in Action. Yeah. Uh, and, th- and that was sort of a blast to do that. But So I don't get nervous um, you know, doing these sort of interviews, but it is always awkward in that you're 
you have a limited amount of time to talk to these people. As you said, their time is valuable and you need to do your research. At the same time, you can't militantly go through your questions because you want it to have kind of a conversational feel, right? So it's, right. A, it's a real fine balance and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I think with Uwe Boll, uh, it was fortunate enough to, to, to work. And then um, around that, that same time, I, I think ever since 2007, I had the idea of doing a book about Uwe Boll's movies. And it was really in, oh, I think around 2015, 2016, he did his third Rampage movie. It has no relations to the video games. It's just, it's called, happens to be called Rampage. Right. Um, called um, the, the most recent one, I think it's Rampage um, Capital Punishment. Let's look it up. I could have that title wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, this is the last movie I'm going to do. This is it. I can't do it. You know, the budgets aren't high enough. And I thought, well, maybe this is a sign. I, I should really write, write a book about this stuff. And I pitched um, Moon Books Publishing. It's a small press on it. And they liked the idea. And it, originally the idea was just for me to do a book on the video game movies. But then I decided to sort of do three separate volumes, each one looking at about 10 films a piece. Uh, and that way, you know, people can kind of cherry pick what they wanted. You know, everything is split up into series nowadays. So um, I, I hope for all three volumes to be done uh, and out there by um, sometime, you know, in, in 2020, maybe early 2021. But this first one should come out uh, in a few months, in a few months here. Yeah, you, you've clearly been very busy with that. I was I was surprised that in the middle of everything else, you're managing to uh, complete and publish a book. That's and. Hey, that that's yeah. great to for them to go. Yeah, let's do three volumes. That's uh, you, you don't hear about that too often. No, I mean I I pitched them on that idea and they agreed to. I, I was surprised they agreed to it really. And it's uh, I I just really thought and I looked on Amazon and there's no English language books. And I have to stress this is an unofficial book um, about Uwe Boll. There isn't. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if someone's going to do it, it might as well be me. And I should just cover everything. Because why not? If I'm just going to cover just the video game movies, that's ignoring, uh, you know, most of his stuff is not video game movies. Most right. of it is is often based on historical topics, one way or another, or more political. Uh, he did one called Heart of Heart of America that was inspired by Columbine. He did Tunnel Rats, which was a Vietnam movie. You know, he kind of goes all over the place with the genres. Uh, so I, I I just figured you might as well just do everything and just have it as three smaller volumes. Unfortunately. Uh, Moon Books Publishing agreed. So, yeah, and it's funny that he hasn't been written about more, even in uh, just general film books and things like that, because he certainly right. is a part of film history. Whether it be for you know fame or notoriety, he's done something no one else has really done. I don't know how you don't capture that and tell that story. Yeah, I don't know either. I think I think when he announced his so-called retirement, and I I think he might be doing other stuff in the future. We'll have to see. He got some attention that way. There was like a vanity fair article that was pretty good written about him and uh, Hollywood reporter and variety did, did these big sort of retrospectives on him. And I think now, you know, enough time has passed where people might want to give things a, a second look. And I think speaking of Uwe Ball to kind of steer it more to the, the video game design conversation, I've been working with uh, Gary Otto and, and Uwe Ball on a on a video game based on an unproduced uh, screenplay. This part freaking blows my mind. Like, yeah. <laughs> I had to look at your notes several <laughs> times. I'm like, is he saying what I think he's saying? So, 
Man, and and that that sort of came on the heels of uh, you know doing the interview. Was there a connection there? Uh, through the interview, I had introduced myself to his producer uh, Gary Otto, and we, we hit it off. And it just kind of came out of the blue, um, late uh, twenty eighteen. And I, I said, well, you know, I've been itching to make a game again, and and to do it this way, I thought would be really novel. And uh, and so it, it's based off a. Uh, uh, unproduced screenplay by Uwe Boll, Gary Otto, and Ben Woodowis. And um, it's it's more, I think originally it was developed to be a postal sequel, but then it was turned into something else. But it, I would say it's more along those lines and more, um, more comedic. Mm-hmm. And you don't see comedy a lot in, in games even now. You might see a little bit in sort of the old, you know, like LucasArts, Monkey Island games. Yeah. Uh, or even... Um, Oh, what was it? You had the uh, you had that game with Jack Black on the Xbox 360, the Brutal Legend. You know, Brutal Legend, sort of, sure, it, yeah. It had some comedy elements, but still, comedy is really underused in games, and I'm not really sure why that is. It's it's hard to say. I'm with you, and I agree. It's it's not used as well as it should be. I love the idea of doing comedic games and more story driven games. And I, sometimes I think it's maybe because smaller groups want to tackle those projects and they're largely technical people who don't feel as comfortable working in the, you know, comedy space or, or whatever it is. I've speculated on that before, but I'm really not sure. Yeah. You're starting to see some comedy like in, in the dating Sims. Oh yeah. Uh, there, there was one a few years back called Hatchiful pigeon, which was a dating sim where everyone is pigeons. <laughs> That's very strange. I think the webpage for that said it. The game operates at sixty flaps per second. There's a, a whole lot of <laughs> pigeon puns, and yet you know, like the plot is this weird post-apocalyptic Mad Max thing. Like it, it somehow manages to work in spite of itself. Yeah. So um, you see comedy every now and then. So to work in that space with, within a game, and yet it also has um, other uh, elements to it. I, I think will make it interesting uh when it when it comes out so obviously this will be more of a story driven thing i mean is is uve going to be somewhat participatory in this i mean are things going to go back to him and he goes thumbs up thumbs down or is he mostly providing sort of a content base to go on i would say mostly a content base most of it is is me working with the with gary the the producer um uh, but that that being said you know i i've watched at this point, nearly every Uwe Boll film. So I know the the tone of the different stuff it goes for. And I think that that certainly helps because there's, um, and there's definitely a, a challenge where you have a, you have a screenplay, right? Originally it was meant for film and you're adapting that to a video game. And I do draw upon, uh, for whatever reason, I think, you know, as, as we mentioned, I love video games and movies as a child and I still do, obviously, of the podcast and all the writing and stuff, um, I would play a lot of video games based on movies, which you don't really get that much anymore. Yeah. And a lot of them <laughs> were not very good, right? So I, I think you kind of see like what works and what doesn't. And uh, did you ever play any of those? The uh, the NES was such such a golden age for those yeah. uh, movie-based films. And some of, <laughs> some of them seemed very closely related to their, their uh, content and some of them did not. So even as a kid, yeah, I enjoyed tracking those down, renting them because renting was all the rage in, in that time. And it was pretty mm-hmm. low risk. Now you'd be pissed because you'd spend 60, 70, 80 bucks on it. <laughs> I think the closest you see now to movie games are the Lego games. 
Yeah, and the Lego games are pretty fun. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe that's how our, our version of perfecting that, and that's as good as we're going to get, perhaps. Yeah, I was sort of blown away the other day. I was watching uh, my nephew Tobin was playing Lego, I think Lego Avengers, one of the recent Marvel ones. Mm-hmm. And he had a character on a jetpack, and he just had him going around in circles again and again and again. He wasn't you know, trying to open the door or whatever you were trying to do. And uh, his grandpa was asking him, Tobin, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm having a parade. And I'm like, that's <laughs> a perfectly valid thing to do. Like, it's maybe not what the game intended, but that the the Lego movie games do kind of a playground for that sort of a thing, I think, is is amusing. And the controls, I think, are simple enough, too, uh, that, that it helps. Um, my wife and I, you know, they're really good for couch co-op. And my wife and I really like the Lego Harry Potter games. Oh yeah, I think my the, wife would like that too, actually. And they and they re-released a version of those on the uh, Xbox One and PS4 not too long ago, and and they do a good job doing the magic spells and doing the plot of the movies. And uh, the older Lego games have it in the cutscenes where they don't just use dialogue from the movies. Instead, it's sort of like pantomime, uh, oh, yeah. silent movie humor, and I think that's that's a bit more charming. Yeah, I, I definitely liked that where they would have their own jokes and, and their little inside uh, <laughs> things for the movies. But you bring up a good point. Also for the kids, it's this just play set like a real set of Legos would be. And you can kind of do do more than you would do with the average game. You can sort of have that leeway to play around and nothing's going to come murder you. And it's just fun. Right. And, you know, it would, with the, the Uwe Boll game I'm working on, I'm having fun, you know, kind of working through some of the... Uh, the logic of when a, when a screenplay is, is written in, when you're reading it, it, it's written to be filmed. And so a film set, you know, that's in three dimensions. You can do camera angles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And when you're making a, a game to, to look a certain way, you, you don't have all that freedom. So how do you adapt, you know, kind of, you know, limited movement as opposed to a screenplay where you can say, Oh, I don't know. Like, the guy jumps behind the box and pulls out a gun. And we follow the bullet going into the guy's head. But, you know, it, it, yeah. it's a really interesting both uh, I don't know, intellectual challenge. And I also think it's fun uh, at the same time. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, you know, I'll be curious to see what, what people think uh, when it when it comes out down the line. Yeah, for sure. Are you uh, are you collaborating with others or is that mostly uh, you and the producer going back and forth? Uh, as of now, it's mostly me and the uh, producer going back and forth, but um, th- things could change too. I mean, we're still fairly early on in the process, mm-hmm. so we'll just, we'll just have to see um, what happens. We're sort of building in some flexibility there. Nice. Well, it's it's encouraging to see that there's more uh, story content coming from that direction, and I know people will be who wouldn't be curious about this is my, my question. Like this should not have trouble finding an audience. I don't think. No, no, I, I agree. I think it, it it is really going to be something, uh, quite unique at the end of the day. Yeah. A little, little bit of a historical thing to, uh, to be a part of. Um, Mm -hmm. I was, I was looking for Uwe. I think his Twitter is not exactly active at this moment. Don't entirely know what happened there, but, uh, it's still articles come out about him all the time. So, yes, and uh, lately he's been writing reviews on Letterboxd. Oh, that are um, very uve. I don't know how else to say it. They're <laughs> he's very much having the kind of kind of bizarre, but it's uh, yeah, kind of going all over the place in terms of movies he's looking at. So I think he's 
he's having fun with that. And um, if you want to look for a, a really interesting sort of bit of Uwe Boll trivia, the late Anthony Bourdain did an episode of his show, not not the last one he did, but um, one of the ones he did, I think, on the Travel Channel, maybe. Oh, okay. He went to um, Vancouver and got to be an extra in the Uwe Boll video game movie Far Cry. And there's huh. like a 10-minute segment on his show where it shows Anthony Bourdain working with Uwe Boll on this like one-second scene where he plays a guy that gets shot. And in the movie, like, the guy has no dialogue. And if, if you know it's <laughs> Anthony Bourdain, you know it's him. But otherwise, it could just be a random extra as far as you know. And, and it's a delightfully strange uh, segment on a travel show. Man, Anthony was a good sport, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, uh, all, all the the crazy things he had to do. And, I mean, really, the writing, too. He did a few fiction uh, mystery books, one of which was adapted into a movie Um produced by Ron Perlman. Oh, and he did some comic books and stuff too. Like he really did. Um, man, Anthony Bourdain is, is sorely missed. I, I really was a, a fan of his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I only got to, to know him a little bit, uh, know his work a little bit, right. Just right before he passed, which was, uh, just, just a shame. Yeah. So, um, well tell me this as, as we sort of wind down, obviously you've got this project coming up, Following that, say it goes well, I mean, are you going to do more more game work? I mean, what's in the future for you? Yeah, I'd like to do more game work and more uh, writing work. I wouldn't mind fooling around doing a sort of graphic adventure type of game. Yeah. I really enjoyed that, that genre growing up. And I um, recently on uh, on good old games, GOG.com, I, I picked up a bundle of these games from Wadget Eye Games and was playing one called The Shiva recently. Uh, where, where you play as a as a rabbi in a murder detective story, like it's it's, it's a very odd premise, but it, it really works, and it really sort of, uh, given that I'm interested in in uh, the narrative side of video games, it makes me think that could be something fun as a as a genre to to play around with next. Yeah, um, abs- absolutely, and and you'll be busy with the other books as well, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. It it really was quite something to to get all the movies for research and you look on your shelf and it's 30 Uwe Boll movies staring you in the face and you're going to be, okay, let's do this. Right. You may have <laughs> and, the biggest Uwe shelf at, at this I, point. I, I think so. And in fact, uh, for, for some of the stuff you mentioned, Postal, Postal has a director's cut that you can only see on the German DVD. So I, for like, I don't know, 30 bucks or something, I got a region two LG brand, a DVD player off Amazon <laughs> and, and ordered the region two DVD off of eBay and crossed my fingers, hoping it would work. And it did. So I did that just for this, this, uh, project. So I got a few of his stuff that's only come out in, um, in Europe, but Man. most of his, most of his <laughs> work is in the United States. That's why I tell people you have to really like your your content when you get into projects like this because you're, right. you're going to do things for it you never see coming you're, you're buying weird dvd players or you're you know collecting all these films and if it's just something you just sort of liked a little bit in the first place you're going to crash and burn absolutely and just uh, so much of it this is really the first long form project uh, i've done like this as far as writing with the this uh first book that's coming out is it really is a discipline. You have to, I mean, I, I like, I love writing, but you, I work a, a day job as do most writers and you have to make a choice when you come home from work. 
Am I going to sit down? Am I going to write my book? Am I going to play a video game? Am I going to take a nap? Am I, you know, whatever. Right. It, and it, it, it just really comes down to that to, uh, and I think the, the more you do it, the more you, you get better at it. And, and one thing that, um, was a real challenge to me is I had written, you know, like little short fiction pieces that I've never released anywhere. Maybe I'll do some of that later in the future. Uh, but when I write fiction, I can put on music and do whatever I want, but because I'm doing a nonfiction book based on movies, I'm referencing things constantly. So I can't listening to music is far too distracting. I'm that way too. I I can't have Spotify playing if I'm working on, uh, I found last night I couldn't even configure uh, software while like Hulu was playing or I I had something going on Spotify. (laughs) I'm I'm like working with config files and trying to figure out what .NET stuff I need. And I'm like, I can't, can't. it's got to shut down. It's funny. What were you messing with config files for? I'm actually trying to get mono game up and going and I I finally did at the end of last night, but I wanted to have some cross platform potential without having to rely on something like unity or uh, unreal. Mm. So finally got there and now I can finally start looking at maybe what the next big project will be. Well, great. Well, I've, I've, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation we've had and I've hope uh, you and your listeners have taken away something from it as well. (laughs) <laughs> they absolutely will. And I'm encouraging them to uh, follow you along online. Uh, where can they catch you? Yeah, so on Twitter, people can follow me at M-A-T-W-B-T. Uh, the website is matwbt.com. Uh, you can listen to the podcast, uh, sequelcast2.com. Yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. The book that's coming out is The Films of Uwe Boll, Volume 1, The Video Game Movies, 2003 to 2014 coming out for moon books publishing that should come out uh certainly before the end of the year very cool and let's get you back before the uh, game is ready to play and uh, we can we can send you your first players yeah sounds great all right thank you once again to matt Great guest, really nice guy to have around on Twitter. Again, his book is coming out September 27th, 2019 from Moon Books. That's the films of Uwe Boll, Volume 1, the video game movies. So if you uh, are interested in that, check it out. Also, if you like Game Dev Breakdown, we would love to have you subscribe. You can do that at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, we're everywhere. You can uh, check out show notes at CodeWritePlay.com. You can check out our Patreon community at Patreon.com slash CodeWritePlay. Let us know how you're enjoying the show. Reach out to us on social media and uh, look forward to bringing you more fun stuff later in the week. So keep playing, keep working hard, catch you soon.